Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. They say it takes a village, and that is certainly true in sleep medicine. Sleep clinicians rely on a team of healthcare providers to provide the highest quality patient care. Advanced practice providers, in particular, are taking on important roles from patient care and education to practice management. To talk more about the role of APPs in sleep medicine, I am pleased to welcome Loretta Colvin to the show. Loretta is a nurse practitioner at SSM Health Medical Group in St. Louis. She's an active AASM volunteer and, in 2019, received the AASM Excellence in Education Award. Welcome to Talking Sleep, Loretta. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Tell us a little bit more about your background and experience in sleep medicine. Well, I've been a nurse practitioner for almost 20 years. About 15 of that has been in sleep. I uh, happened into sleep by luck and got trained on the job knowing nothing about sleep disorders when I started. (laughs) And then I um, fell in love with it and I've stuck with it. I've worked across multiple settings, both academic, freestanding, and now within a large healthcare system that spans multiple states. But I stay within the sleep specialty within my organization. That's kind of fantastic. So Let's talk a little bit about APPs. So I think over the years, we've seen some changes in terminology. So I know years ago, um, people used to refer to nurse practitioners and PAs as mid-levels, and that, that kind of makes me cringe. So what is a more appropriate term? Well, more recently, you're hearing the term APP or advanced practice provider. That would include both APRNs and uh, PAs, uh, which is advanced practice registered nurses or physician assistants. The term APRN is actually an umbrella term for multiple masters prepared at nurses. That would include nurse practitioners, which is probably what people are most familiar with, but mm. also nurse anesthetists, clinical nurse specialists, and nurse midwives. Uh, There are some terms that I wouldn't recommend using, like mid-level provider or physician extender. Those are not ones that people appreciate much, although they are still terms you will see in regulatory environments because they are the ones that are used either in statutes or in regulatory uh, language. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, so then to help me understand the difference between an APRN and an NP is that the APRN is the bigger term and NP sort of falls under it? Correct. Okay. So like we kind of talked about at the beginning, APPs really are taking on more and more responsibility in sleep centers and in clinics. Now, you've been in the field for a long time. What changes have you seen in this respect? I think the biggest change that I've seen is more people uh, adding an APP to their team. I There was This was not as common when I first started. In fact, when we first started trying to better understand what APPs were doing within sleep centers, it was a little difficult because there was a smattering of us across the country and each of our models was quite different in how we were utilized. So the biggest thing I see is rapid growth, but then also kind of being innovative in how they're used and trying Mm -hmm. to use an APP to fill certain needs within a sleep center, like behavioral therapy or CPAP coaching or some of the care management skills and uh, that are needed to, as our patients become more complex and our health system becomes more complex. Ooh, tell me more about that. So how can we make the most of our APP team members and really 
help to elevate our patient care and in doing so, making it more accessible for our patients? Well, I think it's important to try to figure out what are the needs of your sleep center, what are the skill sets of your APPs, and recognize each APP will come with a slightly different skill set. So someone may have more of a background in population management, and this is something that's going to become more and more of interest as we look into new models of care. Others may do better in one-on-one interaction with patients, and that's a person you're going to put more on a standard schedule with uh, visits that they're billing. There may be uh, APPs that have an interest in education, either group education of patients or education with the com- within the community. So there are ways to branch out beyond that traditional role of seeing patients one-on-one and billing for the visit uh, to be able to broaden what services you provide within your sleep center. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that idea that it can be beyond that one-to-one interaction. So, and I'm sure this comes up all the time, when a patient asks you, what is the difference between you and the doctor? How do you answer that? Well, I want the patient to realize that there is a difference, but at the same time, recognize that for their experience, one-on-one in the clinic, they may not see as much variation Uh, So I talked to them a little bit about the difference in educational preparation. Obviously, physicians have gone to school for a lot longer. You've gone into much more debt as well as a result. (laughs) So I want to recognize that commitment that you've made. But in the clinic, the patients may not see that big of a difference because of the type of care we're providing. But they may see differences more based on our own personal style of practice. And so sometimes that's actually where we try to match our patients to what they need out of the provider or physician and make sure that we're meeting their needs either for prescribing or for their own comfort. So when I'm talking to patients, I do want them to recognize that we are different, but we are also collaborating as a team. So really what you're describing with this almost like a matchmaker, right, where you try to find the right caregiver or the right um, clinician for the right patient. I feel like that's maybe not always just NP versus physician, right? I feel like in big physician groups, you will say, okay, well, this is sort of the person who does hypersomnias and this is the person who does, you know, is really good at CPAP troubleshooting. So in that respect, it may not be as different as what we're already doing. Correct. And I think that that is something that people should really think about when they're trying to formulate their model is maybe not looking at the difference between physician and APP, but the difference in practice and also some of the nuances of it. I may have the luxury of more time on my schedule because I am not the highest salaried provider within the practice. So we can give me more time to help handhold the patients, coach the patients, educate them, and freeing up more time for the physicians. But then also recognizing that I do things like insomnia, we may give me more time because of that role in a way that we wouldn't give to others. With COVID, we've all seen a lot more insomnia in our clinics. How are you managing all of this insomnia where you are? In our clinic, I'm actually the insomnia uh, expert, if you will. At least this is what we tell our referring doctors (laughs) um, because we're trying to get patients in slotted in for behavioral therapy. Now, I don't want to scare the psychologists out there thinking that I'm somehow going rogue and doing CBTI. Um, That's not really my focus. Um, But in our area, we're trying to be able to manage some of our insomnia patients within our medical clinic without having to refer them to our tertiary center 
because it helps with their access of, to care. It helps decrease wait times. And it allows me to also manage their other comorbid conditions like their sleep apnea or their restless leg syndrome. So we are, um, we have a program for insomnia where the patients are scheduled with me first and I evaluate whether I think they're a candidate for brief behavioral therapy. And if so, then I initiate brief behavioral therapy. Some of our primary care providers actually like this because this gives them an alternative to prescribing as a first step when a patient comes into them with acute insomnia that seems like it has a chronic nature to it or that they're just trying, maybe because the patient is young or for other reasons, they're trying to not have prescribing as their first go-to. And so they'll send the patient to me for a comprehensive evaluation. So of course I'm screening for all the sleep disorders, but then I'm always thinking in the back of my head, do I think I can do BBTI with this patient and would they benefit? And if so, then I present that as an option and that's how we start. I love that. And I love that you distinguish between what you're doing and CBTI. I suppose that opens, it leaves the door open, right? For patients that need further care. Well, correct. So if they don't respond to care, then I can go ahead and refer them over to our CBTI specialists in my region. Now, I'm in a large region with tertiary care centers, so I have that resource available. People who are in a more rural area, you're in Fargo, for example, this is not always a resource they have easily available. Mm -hmm. So if they can meet the patient's need for the less complex patient there in their sleep center, it's great. Uh, but also, there are some patients who I will not present BBTI as an option because I can already tell the complexity of their case is going to go beyond what BBTI can help them with. They may have more complex psychiatric disorders or they may have already gone through CBTI before. And in that case, a more simplified approach is not really going to be the right fit. I love your approach. Uh, with BBI. And I really love how then you're you're letting people have almost an off-ramp, right? That you're not just approaching them with, oh, I think you need CBTI and you need to go to psychologist and and have therapy. Because I think that some people immediately are resistant to that. Oh, I agree. Unfortunately, I think there is still too much stigma about the amazing resources that our psychology and psychiatry um, colleagues provide and patients shut down when they just hear psychologists, they hear counselor and they don't, they say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that person. And so then they don't want to seek the care that would benefit them. So for me, I can kind of offer an introduction to it in a safe space. They're just in the sleep clinic. They're just seeing the nurse practitioner. I don't have anything with psych in my name. So <laughs> it's easier for them to take that as a first step. And then they kind of realize that I'm not going to ask them about their childhood and put them on the leather couch. I'm just going to explore their habits and then give them some coaching on how to make those changes while we also talk about other sleep disorders if relevant. And I love how you referred to it as CBTI light. Yes. So that's also what I tell, I partly tell my psychologist colleagues this to give them a little <laughs> bit of comfort, um, but it helps better explain, you know, like if a physician says, I want to hire an APP to do CBTI, I'll say, you know, most of us aren't trained for full CBTI. We're more like probably a CBTI light kind of uh, preparation. And that's probably all you need in most sleep centers, unless you have a robust insomnia program. Some of the large centers do have CBTI prepared and trained APPs that are part of their staff as well, in addition to their psychologists. But not everyone is going to need that level of training. 
So clearly there are so many ways that we can work with APPs to manage our caseload and really make care much more accessible. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Do you have the next great idea to turn sleep care upside down? Register for AASM Change Agents and a chance to win a share of $25,000. Rethink the diagnosis and treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. Learn more about this exciting competition at aasm.org slash change agents. We're back with Loretta Colvin, APRN, an advanced practice provider for a sleep clinic in St. Louis. So for someone who hasn't partnered with an APP before, uh, what are some strategies to develop a successful model? I think the most important thing is to think about what you need and with that, then figure out what you're going to look for in a candidate. So if your need is to have people that are filling niches like insomnia or CPAP coaching, then you're going to want someone who can sell that type of treatment to a patient. So thinking about uh, their interaction, their marketing skills, if you will. So maybe you don't pick the quietest person if Mm. that's what you're needing out of them. Um, And also you want to figure out what they're looking for as well. If if a person is um, looking for a certain career path that doesn't align with what the sleep center is going to be able to provide, then maybe that's not going to be a great fit. So, I mean, that's a really important point, though, to recognize both, both the needs of the clinician and the needs of the practice, and really to kind of have that forward thinking uh, to see if maybe down the road is this something that would fit. You know, like right now we need to offload, we have a lot of clinic patients, but then down the road, can we develop a CPAP desensitization clinic or an insomnia program? Yeah, and I think this is one thing that is hard for physicians that are more used to working with trainees, because with trainees, they're looking at a short-term relationship and there's different goals. So they have to step back from that trainee model that they might be used to and think about people that they want to keep more than three years and what are going to be the things that keep them. And uh, perhaps that also opens a conversation for work hours, for time off, because not everyone wants to live the life of an intern for multiple (laughs) years, right? You do it for a short time and then you're done. (laughs) So people have to think about that. And I think there's also that need to respect then somebody who's been in the field like you for 15, 20 years, right? That there is that knowledge base and that you can't stay in that sort of, like you said, the trainee role. For, right. for extended periods of time. So it really is changing that trajectory, right? And that mindset of, yeah, we know that, you know, house staff will work a crazy amount of hours and that's not realistic to maintain long-term. Correct. And you don't really want to set people up in that because then they're going to burn out and that path to burnout is not pleasant for anyone around the person burning out. So just try to avoid it from the beginning. Well, and, and that's probably good advice even for house staff, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> so what about group education? Do you think there's a role there or, or do you think that's more for the CCSH credentialed people? I think the question that's come up in some of the models that I've worked in is just trying to figure out the financial side of it. What's going to be the possibilities for reimbursement? What is your particular health system 
comfortable with and what um, cushion do they have? You know, if they're really looking for a high billing provider, then they don't have abilities to see education as mm. helpful within that. But if they're looking for more of a population-based model, then education makes more sense because the more education you do up front, you may see more in the adherence, maybe don't need as many appointments down the line because you're looking per patient at the cost rather than just per individual slot that is billed. So that's, I think, one of the things that really comes up. And then just making sure that if it's a person that is interested in providing that group education, not mm. everyone loves talking to in front of a group. And so you want to be careful to make sure that you're not putting someone in a position that they would be um, very nervous with. Or well, kind of... training them so that they become comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's part of it, right? It sounds like it really is developing a relationship with that person. Yes. And then back to what you asked about CCSH, you know, the CCSH credential is across multiple disciplines. So it's open to many different uh, people within the sleep team. Although I think you see more respiratory therapists mm -hmm. or sleep techs, that kind of background seeking that added credential. And so that gives them new training and knowledge to be able to add to their experience that puts them in a position to be in, in an education role or a supportive role for patients in the sleep center. Well, and I think, you know, we've all had changes with COVID and decreased reimbursement and, you know, financial stressors. And so, you know, I think a lot of people are looking for different revenue streams. And so is it a way that, you know, we can incorporate these group visits or how can we extend and, and really kind of extend our reach, right, into maybe remote areas with telemedicine? And I understand you've been doing telemedicine for quite a while. Yeah, I was one of the people doing telemedicine on a small scale pre-COVID, <laughs> but our limits were reimbursement. And so it was only for the right patient where it was the right type of model for them, not worrying about reimbursement through insurance, for example. Um, and then COVID hit and all of a sudden <laughs> everyone was interested. So it made it a lot easier for me. One of the best parts was they upgraded the technology. So suddenly I had technology I would have never had available <laughs> pre-COVID. It's kind of a silver lining, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, and I think it's funny, you know, I, I practice in North Dakota and where I am, nurse practitioners can practice independently. And so the supervisory sort of role is not as maybe um, concerning as in other states where they're, they're, are, they're very strict about direct supervision versus remote supervision. And how does that all work with telemedicine, right? <laughs> Oh, and that's, I think, going to be the question going forward. We've seen a lot of relaxation in rules. I'm mm -hmm. in a state that is more um, tighter with its regulation, and they've loosened those rules with COVID. And now the question will be, where do we see that in the future? Will we go back to the old days? Will, will we be somewhere in the middle? Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, during COVID, we've proved that these relaxations have not necessarily reduced quality of care. So if we can show that, maybe we don't need to go back to the old days of um, tight regulation, maybe we can find a happy medium somewhere in the middle. Well, and I think it really speaks to that whole idea that we are not competitors, right? We're all colleagues. We're all part of the same team with that same common goal of just delivering better care for our patients, right? That's how I look at it. I mean, I'm not really here to try to take a physician's job. 
I haven't seen that there's enough of you guys out there to do the work <laughs> of all the sleep apnea patients alone if we were to diagnose everyone that is uh, suspected of having sleep apnea. So if you look at the numbers, I feel like there's a lot for us to share. Well, I agree with you. And I really appreciated you sending me those numbers of ASM and and kind of the breakdown of um, the representation of nurse practitioners over the years. I thought those numbers were really, it really demonstrated that nurse practitioners are making up a larger percentage of our membership than perhaps they had in the past. Now, does that reflect more uh, involvement? Does that reflect the number of nurse practitioners in sleep? I don't know. I'm not sure we'll ever know because when I started on some of the committees early on with the ASM, we didn't know. In fact, that was one of our roles within the presidential task force that I was part of was to try to figure out what we knew and what we didn't know. And we learned one of the things we didn't know was membership because at the time we didn't have the right categories to be able to identify APRNs or PAs separately from other categories. So these are some of the things that we have done over time uh, is advise the ASM in being able to better understand who's out there. I think largely the growth that we've seen, though, has just been the growth in utilization of APPs within sleep, utilization of APPs across all specialties in primary care. So I think you're going to continue to see that trend of expansion, um, and we can better calculate that now because we better capture that information in membership data and uh, participation data. I have noticed that, that the drop-down menu is a lot longer <laughs> than it used to be. You can thank me for that. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think the most important piece of your relationship with your physician colleagues is? So you had posed this question to me earlier on when we had some preliminary discussions. So I had a little time to think about it. And I decided to go to Google and look something up. <laughs> So I Googled the characteristics of a healthy relationship. And my goodness, it was spot on with what I was talking about, what, what I was thinking in my head as I thought about what I've seen of good models and successful relationships or not. So I recommend that people really step back from even thinking about it as only a professional relationship and think about it more broadly. So one of the sites I saw was Kaiser Permanente, and they talked about mutual respect, safety, communication, compromise equality, independence, support, and privacy. And I thought huh. the majority of those worked. They also then talked about toxic relationships and they identified the uh, too much intensity, too much isolation, jealousy, belittling, and volatility as being signs of toxic relationships. Oh and this gosh. was had nothing to do with healthcare. It was <laughs> it was just for patients. But if you step back and take that in, I think it's a nice model to think about within a professional environment as well to really be able to collaborate because that's what you need from this relationship. There will always be questions I have for my collaborating physician, partly because I may have different training. I trained actually in pulmonary sleep. His training is neuro, um, neurology and sleep. Uh, sure. So we will approach things a little differently. And occasionally I'll hit a place where I'm like, oh, I need to remember what his preference is because he's my collaborator. Mm. So it's important for me to be able to have a strong relationship so I can come to him with a question or to just confirm what I think is the next direction and make sure it's something he's comfortable with if I'm you know, having to do something a little creative because things aren't fitting into the guidelines. Oh, what a great change though. I remember when I was in medical school, we had this surgeon that was known for having this really bad temper. And if you said something wrong, you'd have to duck because he'd throw surgical instruments at your head. 
<laughs> in the middle of a case. <laughs> and so when you talked about this toxicity, right? I think in medicine, we've all seen this, this hierarchy and there's, you know, we have enough toxicity. And so we do have to be probably more intentional about our relationships moving forward and how to really create, because all of that creates just a better experience for our patients, right? And that isn't that Absolutely. kind of the whole point? Oh, it's totally the point. I mean, we're all here to provide excellent patient care, but if we get too caught up in the drama and the tension, then we can't really focus on the patients. And so we've got to be able to recognize that and be able to correct a direction that we're going that's not healthy. So I think I know the answer to this, but um, so what's your deal breaker? <laughs> so I'll give an example. Uh, I've always wanted to be face-to-face -face with patients for a lot of what I do. And one time someone said that their model for using an APP was to have someone to answer their phone calls and messages. And I uh -huh. thought, wow, that's such an underutilization of the skills I have when I can bill, when I can make independent decisions, but you're really not letting me or a, a person in that position rise to the extent of what they're training and their certification allows. So you're really limiting them. And it's not something where a person's going to feel great over time, you know, back to that long-term planning, that that's not meeting their goal of wanting to be able to be in the role of an advanced practice provider, and especially as a billing provider. That's really true, right? We want to work at the top of our licensure. Right. And at the same time, we don't want to be put in positions where we're outside of our scope of practice right. or beyond what either our licensure would allow or our state regulation would allow. So it is also important for, say, a physician collaborator to know what are the limitations either within the healthcare system, within the state, even some of the federal requirements that might impact what you can ask an APP to do. So that you're not putting them in a position where they're always having to say, you know, I can't do that. Like for me, I don't see pediatrics. My certification is an adult mm. certification. So I always have to have that question in an interview to ask about whether there's a pediatric population within the clinic. But that's a really important point, right? Like we, we do have to be respectful of that, you know, and not expect people to work outside their scope of practice. Right. And recognizing that for non-physicians, there are limits to scope of practice, which so for so physician experience is not quite the same. There's not as much regulation at the state level, for example, to say you can do this or can't do this. And so sometimes physicians forget that the rest of us <laughs> might have more rules. <laughs> well, that's probably true. It's a Goldilocks, right? You, you, want, to, you want to utilize your skill set, but you don't want to you know, do something that's sort of on the wrong side of that. Right. No one wants to get in trouble. So I'm sure in all of your experience, you've seen a ton of pitfalls over the years. What are the ones that really that really uh, ring for you? I think the biggest is when people don't really think ahead and be intentional in their planning. They just decide to hire someone, but they don't do their research. So when people come to me and say, I'm thinking about adding an APP to the team, what should I do? I tell them to talk to their colleagues in their health system and in their state so they understand what are the rules they need to be aware of. And what are some of the models that have worked for other specialties? I mean, yes, cardiology and sleep are different, but at the same time, cardiology has a lot of chronic disease management. Right. So you may be able to get some uh, pointers from that. Also talk to people who are APPs and sleep in other areas. For one, you can find out what they're doing. You can also find out the innovations they're doing, and it may trigger you to realize there's something you haven't been offering that you could if you added an APP. And then just balancing what you need with what the candidate is looking for and try to have those honest conversations early so that you're setting the expectations 
and able to fulfill those expectations versus hiring someone who does not have an interest in what you're needing. Mm -hmm. I think that's huge. So if there's an overall message that you could share with both patients and clinicians about APPs, what would it be? Well, first, I just tell people that we're amazing, but you're probably going <laughs> to want more than that. <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing is just to um, let patients know what we're here for. We're here to help them. We're here to educate them and help with their evaluation and management. But we're also here to recognize when we need other resources and support and to then bring in our physician if there is something that really the patient needs that physician's um, care for. And I also think it's important for patients to understand that we are working collaboratively. And early on, this was not something that was always clearly uh, articulated uh, in some of the environments that I saw. You know, you'd have the physicians on the website, but not the APPs, even though the APPs were seeing just as many patients. So the patients go to your ah. website and they don't even know that person is there. Or when they would schedule a, a patient they would not tell the patient that I was an APP or a nurse practitioner. And then the patient walks in the door and goes, wait a minute, you're not a doctor. And for them, it was important. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important also just to always think about how we are um, getting that message out and getting it as a supportive and collaborative message. That's a really good point. Well, thank you so much for spending the time to educate us really about this topic. I think you know, hopefully we're going to continue to see growth in this area and in our field. I think it's a great collaborative approach. Thank you. I love talking about this topic. So I was <laughs> thrilled to come in today and speak more about it. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.